Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I speak with Jessica Thompson, Davidson Day School Counselor. In addition to earning a Bachelor of Arts degree in Psychology from Winthrop University and a Master's of Arts in Professional Counseling from Liberty University, Jessica will soon complete a doctorate in Community Counseling. Beyond her impressive counseling experience, Jessica is an accomplished former competitive dancer and an excellent dance instructor and choreographer who works with children from ages two years old through 12th grade. So Jessica, welcome to Davidson Day. We are thrilled that you've joined our community. To start off, can you tell me about the journey that led you to our school? Yeah, for sure. So I'm from Greenville, South Carolina, and I was born and I was raised there. And I went to school at Greenville Senior High Academy. I graduated and then I went to Winthrop University in Rock Hill. And I started off as a biology major and quickly found out that biology was really not my thing. So I had a really amazing academic advisor and she was like, well, you seem to love science, so let's try to put you in a social science. And I went in psychology, and I loved it. So I graduated with a BA in psychology, and then I realized I really wanted to be a counselor, a therapist, so I went on to get my master's in professional counseling at Liberty University, and I graduated, and of course, you're eager to go out into a world and get a job, and sometimes you have these super high hopes of this is the job that I'm going to get immediately when I get out, and it, I want to be in school, but it didn't really work for me, so I started out as a clinical counselor at um, a substance abuse center working with adults and adolescents, and then after that, I went on to do behavioral therapy, ABA therapy for kids who were diagnosed with autism, and then I became a family counselor. And now it's landed me here. So I've had a really good journey that's like given me all the tools that are necessary and the skill set that's necessary to work in the school now. So it worked out pretty well. And we're so glad it did and the timing worked out for us. And so jumping back a little bit. So I've never been to Greenville, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. Greenville, Mm -hmm. and I hear it's a great place. What was it like growing up there? Tell me about your childhood. Greenville is a really, really cool place. I say Greenville because I'm country, but Mm -hmm. it's really Greenville. So Greenville, South Carolina is a really cool place. It's kind of quaint. It's quiet, but it's growing really, really big now. It's a very kind of like an artsy type of city. You wouldn't really know it. But yeah, I went to a fine art center in Greenville, South Carolina, where I did everything from like theater, dance, and played the violin. I started playing the violin when I was like seven years old. And then I went to like an elementary school for the arts and a middle school for the arts. So yeah, Greenville is fun. It's a nice place to raise a family too. And how did you get into the arts? Were your family into drama and dance? Mm-hmm. So my mom, she's a singer. Oh. So she's a really, not professionally, but she's a really good singer. And my dad, actually, he plays the saxophone and he plays the piano and he taught himself by ear. So that's really, really cool. So yeah, and my brother, he's an artist. He's a painter and a graphic arts designer. So we're kind of like a artsy family, I guess. <laughs> and so tell me about the, your schools that you went to. Like, Did they steer you in a certain direction in terms of the arts or that was pretty up to you? Like, how Did you do certain modules on 
drama and then music? Like how that all work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my elementary school, for sure, they kind of help direct kids as as far as art goes. We have like a artist in residence that came like once a month. So they would have people that came from out of state or out of the country to do specific things with the school, whether it's like putting on a play or like a famous potter that comes and teaches us how to do pottery. So that type of thing. So it allowed me to become very cultured and diverse in the art world. That sounds amazing. (laughs) It's really fun. Yeah. And are there many schools like that in Greenville? There's a few that like focus on the arts a little bit. So Stone Academy Elementary is where I went and their art school and League Academy is a school where I went where that's the art school too. And then we have a place that's called the Fine Arts Center and then also the Governor's School, which all you do is like really perfect your craft. So in high school, when you get old enough, like around the ninth grade, you can go to the Fine Arts Center and you have a half, you have a half day of academic school and then you have a half day of like art school to Mm -hmm. basically like perfect your craft. So that's really nice. It gives you the balance kind of that you need. So it's really cool. And that leads into a question I was going to ask a bit (laughs) later, but you've, you've taught dance for a number of years. Like, Mm -hmm. is that how you became involved in dance? I actually started doing dance when I was three years old. There is this show in the 90s. It's called In Living Color. It's a comedy sketch show, but they had these girls in the beginning, and they're called Fly Girls, and they were amazing at what they did, and I would dance in front of the TV with them the whole entire time and would not let my family actually enjoy (laughs) the show. So my mom and dad were like, you're going to, we're going to have to get her in something, and it just... It stuck. Yeah. So I started when I was three and then my teachers were like, she's actually really good. So I think she needs to move up a level. So when I was eight, I started to do competitive dance and I did that until I graduated. Excuse my ignorance. What is competitive dance? (laughs) It's okay. So competitive dancing is basically where you go to competitions and you compete against different teams from all over the state and the country and you get placed kind of like, I guess, kind of like it's kind of like cheer, but I feel like it's a little bit more intense because dance can be like a it's like a three-day weekend competitive type of thing and a whole lot more routine. So you can dance by yourself. You can do a duo with somebody. You can do a large group, small group, production. It's a whole thing. And did you just do a range? Did you mm-hmm. do? Okay. Yep. So I did a range. So I did solos and duos and small groups, large groups, productions, all the other type of things. So And then cool. you, when did you start teaching? Was that when you were in high school or when you got out? So I started teaching a little bit when I was in high school. I was kind of like an assistant teacher for my clogging teacher. So I did clogging for a while and I was really good at it. So I just assisted him with his classes. And then once I graduated from high school, of course, I went to college. So I didn't have any time really to teach. But after I graduated college, I was like, couldn't find a job. The job market was horrible at the time. And I just had this feeling like, hmm, I know the studio that's around town. Maybe I'll ask if they're hiring because we competed against them before as a kid. So I just sent them an email and it's like, hey, I'm looking for a job. Yeah. And then the rest is history. So I started teaching like immediately once I graduated from college. And was that here in Charlotte? Yes, in Charlotte. And you've been teaching dance for a number of years now. And so what type of dance? 
so I teach ballet, I teach jazz, I teach tap, I teach a little bit of acrobatics to the little ones, and I teach hip hop. So that's awesome. A full spectrum, yeah, for kids from the ages of two all the way up to like eighteen years old. So it's a big, huge age gap, but I love it. I get to teach everybody and see how they grow. So it's pretty amazing. You are currently in the last stages of obtaining your doctorate in community counseling. What is the topic of your dissertation and why did you decide to study that? So the topic of my dissertation is, does social media have an adverse effect on millennials? And I specifically did social media because we're just living like very much in a digital age right now where we're just like... People are constantly on their phones and constantly involved with social media. So that's why I wanted to do that specifically. And I wanted to primarily focus on millennials because there is a lot of research that's already been done on how social media affects children, adolescents, and teens. But there's a big gap of research that's missing for people who are on in the age range of like 26 to 36, which is kind of what's needed because I feel like millennials are the bridge for the digital age. So they know what it's like to be without a phone and to get like, I don't know if you guys know, like an AOL dial-up disc (laughs) in the mail and have to put in your computer and you can't use the phone while you use the internet. And then like not having anything at all, you know, as far as digitally, not even really having like a computer or anything like that, and then being totally immersed into like the digital age when they're a kid. So that's what I'm focusing on. And I'm hoping that I can do a whole lot of research to kind of help fill in the gaps that are missing for that. Do you have an idea of what you'll find? So what I've been finding recently is that there are adverse effects for social media usage on millennial adults, but it's based upon the amount of time that you use social media. So whether you're like a binger, like you're constantly on it and you're just like constantly scrolling and digesting the things that you're seeing or whether it's like you just check it like once a day and then leave it alone. But it seems that the people who are like on social media constantly, they have problems with anxiety, self-esteem, and can sometimes go through bouts of depression a little bit more as opposed to an individual who just checks their social media like one and done type of thing. And why do you think they're so connected? I think because social media is very much a highlight reel. So Whatever you see on social media, sometimes it's real and sometimes it's not. And as a person that's sitting behind the phone, it's sometimes hard to decipher what's real and what's not. And if you're constantly looking at somebody else's highlights and see what they're doing, like, oh, they have this, they're doing this, they're doing that, it makes you feel a little bit less adequate when you compare yourself to others, even if what you're looking at through the screen is completely false advertisement. It gives you this feeling of FOMO. So F-O-M-O is fear of missing missing out. out. Yep. Yep. So it makes you feel like you're missing something in life or you're not getting something in life when in reality you really are. You're just looking at somebody else's highlights because that person, they could post like, oh yeah, I'm living it up in life and actually they're They're very sad in the inside. So, yeah. And why do you think the impact is so much more? Forever there's been magazines or TV and I grew up with shows like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Mm -hmm. So, you're always seeing people that have more than what you have or seemingly have this sort of perfect life. Why is it that social media has such an impact? 
I think it's because social media is just way more accessible, okay. right? So we have these smartphones that we keep in our pockets at all times. And it's just like at any point in time, you can grab it and put it in your hand and just scroll down your timeline to see all that stuff. As opposed to if you're watching TV or looking at a magazine, like back then you had to be sitting on the couch at <laughs> yeah. eight o'clock in order to catch the show. And it's not like a DVR where we can record it. Like if you miss it, you miss it. You have to catch it next time. Or if you want to see something in a magazine, you have to physically go out and buy the magazine or while you're looking in the grocery store line, you flip through it really quick and then you put it back. So I think it's just because now in the age that we live in, it's just way more accessible to be able to look at the things that are going on socially as opposed to 20, 25 years ago. I was hearing something recently and it sort of connects with what you were talking about in terms of they were talking about just the monetization of fear, mm-hmm. right? Is that social media has done a really good job of fear and anxiety, but that if you like fear gets you coming back, anxiety gets you coming back. Mm-hmm. And so then they're able to sell more ads. And so mm-hmm. it's also, I guess, you know, to answer my own question before asking what's the difference is that it's constantly moving, like it's all, always right. changing. And so then there's not that, oh, wow, they've got a great big house and I'm going to put that back on the shelf like a magazine. It's just like, it's just constant or right. whatever it may be or mm-hmm. someone you're at the school with is doing something. But as you said, it's such a false picture. Like, I don't know about you, but I mean, I don't use social media a ton. I have family in Australia and different places around America and we want to connect with them. But if I'm having a bad day, I'm not so, I'm really sad. And like today, well, we've had, you know, the kids have really sort of destroyed the house and there's stuff everywhere. Like we're not posting that it's like here's Christmas yeah. Day everyone yeah, looking happy and like yeah. everything wrapped under the tree you know mm-hmm. it's so different When we were chatting yesterday, you mentioned that you're a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. Mm-hmm. I read a little bit about it and it has an amazing history. Can you explain the history of the sorority and how has being a member shaped you? Mm-hmm. So Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated is the very first black sorority to ever be founded in the United States and the very first sorority to be black sorority to be incorporated. It was founded in 1908 at Howard University, which is a, which is a historic black college and university. And during that time, of course, segregation was happening. So completely different time and era. But our founders basically created the organization and the sorority in order to cultivate and encourage high scholastic and ethical standards. And also to make a sisterhood with other like-minded young women and she felt that we basically were indebted to, which I feel like, I mean, the reason why I joined is because I will, we feel like we're indebted to our ancestors and the people's shoulders who we stand on. Um, because back then, a woman going to college was like a huge thing. And a black woman going to college was even more of like a very big deal. So completely indebted to the people who brought us to that space. So yeah, we're basically created in order for sisterhood, education, and service to all mankind to be able to be promoted along with unity. And yeah, I joined when I was 19 years old, my sophomore year of college. My mom is actually an AKA too, so it's kind of a legacy type of thing. But it shaped me to be a very much like cultivated woman. I don't know if that made sense. 
when you're in college and you're in a sorority is kind of like you're in school, you have being academic and being in school, but also for being an AKA, we have so much that we have to get back like that we want to and give back to the community. So we put on programs, we have these initiatives that we have, whether it's based on health, finance, social justice or anything. And we put on programs for the school. We do community service like every type of month. We raise money in order to give scholarships to people that really need it. And I think it's just made me a super well-rounded person, you know, like holding a position in our chapter, we call it a chapter, and being a vice president and also being like a dean of a line. So it's made me well-rounded, so to speak. And I've gotten a whole lot of relationships out of it, a lot of friendships and a whole lot of sisters, a whole lot of sisters out of it. So, yeah. How do clinical psychologists define anxiety? Mm -hmm. So the American Psychological Association, they define anxiety as an emotion that's like characterized by feelings of extreme worry, extreme worrying thoughts, and also like physical tension that's held onto your body that is very much more likely to raise your blood pressure. And the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, they have a disorder, which is called Generalized Anxiety Disorder, which is like in a sector of anxiety disorders. And in order to be diagnosed with that specific disorder, it's basically the same thing as the definition. You have to have excessive worrying about specific topics, events, activities, or peoples that may or may not be true for at least six months persistently. Yeah. And then you also have to have three of the physical or cognitive symptoms, which can be like edginess, fatigue, lack of sleeping, muscle aches, impaired concentration or like irritability. So that's basically what anxiety is. And that's really helpful. And then in Dr. Lisa Demore's book, Under Pressure, she writes about anxiety and she discusses the rise of anxiety and stress in today's youth. And she also discusses how stress and anxiety can be beneficial. Like, How can stress and anxiety be positive? So stress and anxiety aren't a bad thing, like you said. And actually, anxiety is like an innate thing. Everybody has anxiousness. Anxiety is in every human. And it's there because it keeps us away from danger and it keeps us safe, right? So whenever we're around something that doesn't feel right or it feels dangerous, we have this like click of like fight or flight mode. And that's the anxiousness. It's like, do I need to run away or do I kind of need to fight for my life right now? And that's really important for us to have because if not, we would just be walking into dangerous things and dangerous events all the time and just throwing caution to the wind. Stress can be good for us because it kind of, when it's a small amount, it pushes us to work. So it can keep us motivated and it can keep us to work a little bit harder and have a little bit more vigor. The only problem is that when we do have like anxiety or stress that comes in large doses or large amounts. That's when we kind of need to be like, oh, I think something, I need to see somebody or check on something. So small doses of anxiety and stress are completely normal and healthy and they keep us safe away from danger and also make us work a little bit harder. And a follow-up to that is as a parent or or even just a brother or a sister or you know, you have a friend, you want to basically remove all pain and suffering from their lives, Mm -hmm. which is you cannot do no matter how much money you have or what your circumstances are. Like you, we're all going to experience stress and anxiety. And why do you think 
people are so scared when their children, for example, become worried or anxious. There, there seems to be when you people see that in their children, they get very, very fearful. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks more on the parents than it does the child, yeah, right? Sure. So it's kind of like if I see that my kid is being a little bit more anxious than normal, even though their anxiety is kind of like it's normal anxiety at this point, they're just nervous that they have to go on stage to do some type of performance, right? I think it speaks more to the parent because the parent might have more anxiety than the child. So it's just very much of a projection almost at that point. So it's kind of, they might feel as if my child might be becoming me a little bit and it gets them a little bit more on edge. But also I feel like we live in like, I don't know why, but like the society that we live in today is like these trigger words that we have now is like, oh, I'm super anxious. I have anxiety or this is toxic, you know, things like that. It's kind of like a popcorn word that people use now, but they don't really know the meaning behind it. But I think when parents see that their kid is a little bit anxious, of course, your first instinct, right, is I want my kid to be calm and cool and everything that they do, you kind of want to fix the problem immediately. But sometimes it's really important that you just let them work through it. Growing up, my dad was such a worrier. He was always worried we would forget something and would constantly remind us. As an adult, I realized that I may exhibit some of those same behaviors. And because of this, I built systems, really helpful systems that helped me stay organized and actually reduced my feelings of worry and anxiety. For example, I would use lists to remind me when I'd leave the house so I wouldn't forget anything. In a way, worry can be helpful, but anxiety can also be debilitating for young adults. How can parents who are worry-prone avoid displaying or accidentally modeling anxiety in their household? Like, I really wish... Love you, Dad. Really <laughs> wish that he had have sort of been more aware and paid attention and gone, hey, like that could impact my kid down the road if mm-hmm. I'm always like, what about this? Be careful. What about that? Watch that. Do this. And I have seen that so much over the years in education right. of parents creating really anxious kids because right. of their anxiety. Mm-hmm. What can parents do to stop them passing on? the anxiety. Yeah, I think the most important thing for parents to do is just to really check in with their self, right? Okay. So really having a whole lot of self-reflection for for what they're doing. And it's not even really to, hey, I don't want to pass this down to my kid, but you as a person, as an individual, not as a mom or a dad, but just like as who you are as a person needs to work on your anxiety, right? Just for your own healthy well-being. So I think it's just super important that they are able to Either one, talk to somebody or two, figure out the coping mechanisms that they need to have, kind of like your checklist that you make in order to be able to like push through their anxiety and still be healthy and functional at the same time. And once they do that, they'll be able to not only pass it down to their kid, quote unquote, but also help their kid, right? Because if it's kind of like, oh God, I'm anxious, but I know I can make checklists and your your daughter or something is, is, you see, it's like a reflection of you. You can be like, hey, this is what I do in order to keep my thoughts together and to keep, give me a calm body and a calm mind. Let's try to work on this together. I can help you. So it's so much, it's more of a collaboration between the both of you. One, it'll probably help your relationship with your child a whole lot more because you're collaborating with them, but then also will help them to ease their anxiety, not only their anxiety, but also the parents. 
the hard thing often in those situations is the person is unaware. Right. right? And so I remember when this, this is years ago when this someone said this to me, like, sounds like you're anxious. Oh, really? Right. And then it was clear as day to them, right? But off, it wasn't clear to me. And mm-hmm. so and I've when you say to people, you seem angry. I'm not angry. You know, it just like, and <laughs> yeah. then, and so like, I guess sort of as parents, like, or people, as you said, sort of first, like just creating that self-awareness of like, this is how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how do we do it? Go about that. It's really hard because you just have to be very in tune with yourself. Right. So just being present with yourself in the moment to figure out like, why do I feel like this? You know, like, why am I constantly worried? And sometimes it does take a person to be like, you are on edge today. (laughs) What is going on for you to be like, am I on edge? And they'd be like, yeah, you really are. Like, you're super irritable right now. For you to really just be, to check in with yourself. And it's a whole lot easier said than done because, like you said, a lot of people don't know that, like, oh, I have a whole lot of anxiety pent up inside of me. But, yeah. Try to check in with yourself at least once a week. Sometimes I check in with myself like I do it every day, but if when I don't have time, it's kind of like on Sunday, check in with yourself to be like, I had a long week. I'm a little bit exhausted, but you know what? I'm not anxious. My body is calm. My mind is calm. And I'm not even worried about tomorrow. Mm. So just like I keep on saying, but checking in with yourself is completely important. You know, being very aware of your body. Yeah. And just... Back a little bit to where the kids, you know, they're experiencing that sort of pain or suffering. I worked with this amazing social worker at my previous school and she, Nancy, her name is, and she would off, use this term with parents. She said they're experiencing normal social pain. Mm-hmm. Like the kid hasn't been invited to the birthday party mm-hmm. or, you know, they didn't get um, someone wanted to play with someone else at play uh, on the playground at mm-hmm. recess. And I just remember that constantly that that term when something will go wrong, mm-hmm. uh, with, say with my own kids, is just that, is this just normal social pain, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes it's hard for us with the people we love to distinguish what is just quote unquote normal. Like right. we're, it's a universal thing. doesn't matter if you go into school in, I've been lucky enough to visit different schools around the world, like schools in China or in England or in Australia or the US, wherever. And then you're going to have kids being left out on the playground. You're going to have Mm -hmm. kids not being invited invited to birthday parties. You're going to have someone saying, like, I don't like you or like that sort of stuff, right? right? Mm -hmm. Those moments can really create uneasiness in parents. What Mm -hmm. advice do you have when they see their child suffering and it's hard for them to really recognize, is this just normal and part of sort of the human condition or is this above and beyond? Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's a very thin line that you kind of have to teeter totter on. But much like your social worker friend said, you know, like it's just them experiencing normal social pain. I think you just had to put into perspective that I say this all the time because I work with kids, but some kids could just be very mean. Some kids are just like cruel. And it's just kind of like you have to learn how to decipher what's normal and what's not normal by being able to understand that. I say this all the time too. You have to separate the behavior from the person, right? Kids at this age, they really don't have any like (laughs) really realm of like what's going on in their life, if that makes sense. So, okay, they weren't invited to a birthday party. Social pain, right? And it's kind of like you have to 
compare it kind of to yourself as an adult, right? Because it's been things that I've been like, I've missed out on because I haven't been invited. But that's normal, right? Now, if it was something like, didn't get invited to the birthday party, he got bullied on the playground, and then a kid crushed his glasses on the playground. Like, that's abnormal behavior. So that's kind of something, that's when you know it's like, oh, you can still be concerned about it, but I think also it's very important just to be able to validate your kids' feelings at that same time. So it's like, I know you're super sad and super bummed and not being invited to the to the birthday party, but guess what? Like, I haven't been invited to a whole lot of birthday parties too. And, and unfortunately, that's life. That's the name of the game. And I promise you, it's going to be, you're going to be sad for a couple of days, but you're going to get over it. And if you're not over it, then we can talk about it. Yeah. So. Yeah, great advice. Mm-hmm. What are some of the signs when normal worry has transitioned to a more serious issue regarding anxiety? Right. So worry and anxiety are different because worry just resides in your thoughts. Mm, like okay. it's all in your head. Anxiety resides in your head and throughout your whole entire body. So people who are anxious, like overwhelmingly anxious, they hold so much tension in their body that it can lead to like very bad headaches. It can make them feel lightheaded. Sometimes it can lead to like nausea. And sometimes it can lead to like even having panic attacks, right? So worry is very much an external event. Worry is consumed around an external event. So it's kind of like, oh, I'm worried about this super heart test that I have on Friday, right? And I'm worried about it all week. Then Friday comes, I take the test, boom, the worry is gone. Anxiety is very much like I'm worried about taking the test. What if I fail the test? Am I going to get kicked out of school? If I get kicked out of school, what's going to, like, it's a, it's a whole entire thing. And even after you take the test, the external event that might be kind of triggering it, you're still anxious about it, even when it's over and done with. So that's kind of the thin line that you're on. Also, anxiety is a little bit harder to pinpoint as opposed to worrying. Because like I said, worrying is an external event. So I can say, oh, well, I'm worried about my granddad because he he got sick, right? It's very descriptive. I can describe it. I can pinpoint it. Anxiousness is like, I don't really know. I just, I feel really worried about something. And we can't really like... Mm pinpoint exactly what it is you're worried about and if you are worried about it we still don't know like is exactly what the problem is with you worrying about it i guess i don't know if that makes sense but yeah so worry is just in your mind anxiousness is throughout your whole entire body you can feel it and so let's just say a child is experiencing sort of i guess excessive worry it's thought to be anxiety once they go see a therapist I guess, what's the process? And something I also want to say is that I've experienced many times where families have been very resistant to get their child seen by a psychologist or a counselor or a social worker because Mm -hmm. they're sort of worried about stigma associated with it. Mm -hmm. Every single time that they have done it, they've gone, I'm so glad I did this. Right. So I guess it's a two-part question is the first part is what sort of thing, let's, so let's just say we're talking about a middle schooler, right? Because right. we have older kids than that, younger kids than that, but let's just say it's a middle schooler, seventh grade, eighth grade, and they're experiencing excessive worry. So what would be the process that they would go through potentially when they go see a, a counselor? And why do you feel that parents are so worried about their children seeing, some people are so worried about their child seeing someone? 
Mm-hmm. So the process would just be you being referred to go to a therapist of your choice. Yeah, so we give you the resources that you need in order to figure out a therapist who works for you. Because I always say like counselors and therapists are like shoes. You have to find like the one that fits you the best. And it's not like a one all fit all for everybody. So the process would be you get referred to go to somebody and they do an assessment on this middle school kid, right? And they assess the amount of time that he's been anxious, how long he's been anxious for. I mean, like how long during the, like it's it's a very thorough assessment, right? And they're just not going to assess anxiousness. They're going to assess kind of everything, like how much caffeine do you drink? Do you drink water? How many hours of sleep do you get a night? What does your day look like on a normal day? What does your weekend look like? Do you smoke cigarettes? Do you smoke, you know, like any substance? I mean, do you drink any substances? You know, we're doing like a full assessment basically on their whole life. Now, I will say assessments, they take a pretty long time, right? It's not going to be like you go in for 20 minutes and they talk to somebody and they're going to be done. It's more like an hour, 30 minutes, sometimes a two-hour assessment, And the mom can be, mom or dad can be in the room, or if the kid is just kind of like, you know what, I need my privacy, I don't want to talk with my mom or dad around, then the mom and dad can excuse themselves just because of privacy issues. But yeah, that's really, it's just a full body assessment of how everything works in this kid's life. We're just trying to get a full spectrum of like, what does your day-to-day look like? And and what are you, what is really worrying you and consuming you? And then after that, The therapist will take some time and then they will come back with a diagnosis if there is a diagnosis. I think parents are a little bit worried about going to see a psychologist or a counselor who diagnoses because sometimes I think there have been times where this isn't very good, but counselors just kind of slap a diagnosis on a kid. And the diagnosis, it stays with you forever, right? So it's always going to be on your record, whether it's ADHD or some type of, you know, whether you're on the spectrum or you have bipolar disorder or anything like that. Like, that's something that you're going to carry with you for your whole entire life. Kind of like if you get diagnosed with having diabetes, right? That's something that just follows you around. So I think parents are a little bit weary about that because they feel... If my kid has a diagnosis on them, even if the diagnosis is correct, it makes them feel like their kid is less adequate or they have a deficiency and they don't. And also at the same th- same time, I think that our society, we're getting a whole lot better, which I really, really love. But I feel like the society that we live in has had such a negative outlook on what therapy is. Because, you know, 20 years ago, it's kind of like if you told somebody that you were seeing a therapist, they would look at you like you had three heads on your shoulders. Like, what? You're crazy. Something is wrong with you. But I always say, like, therapy isn't just for people who are sad or mad. So therapy is for happy people. Right? So it's like you go to your therapist, you check in with them, and you're able to continue the journey in order to be happy and the best self of best, you know, person of yourself that you can be. So I think it's just changing the connotation around seeing a therapist and also realizing that just because you do see a therapist doesn't mean that you're less adequate than people who don't need to see one.
What are some things that parents can do to help their children who are experiencing heightened feelings of anxiety or worry, particularly during this year of the pandemic? Mm -hmm. I think it's important to answer your kids' questions. Be honest, but also be as simple as as you can. So whether it's saying like, yeah, people, there are a lot of people who are sick right now, but we just need to wash our hands. We need to wear our mask. We need to stay at home and, you know, socially distance ourselves so that not only we can stay healthy, but people around us can stay healthy too. And of course, we're in a pandemic and this is like the first pandemic since like what the Spanish flu or something. So it's kind of like we're living in a very abnormal world and and time right now. So it's completely normal for your kid to be worried because you as an adult is worried too. So it could also be something as simple as saying like, hey, like if your kid is upset that, oh, I don't get to spend the night or have a sleepover with my friend. And we usually always do this. And I think it, like I said before, it's important to be able to validate your kid's feelings and saying like, hey, I know that you're super upset not being able to spend the night. I know that's frustrating. I know how angry you could be about it. But what are some other things that we can do so you can still have fun and still possibly kind of like see your friends or interact with your friends? So validating their feelings, listening to them, but then also giving them other options to live a life that's almost as normal as possible can get right now. I think that will be able to ease their worry a little bit. So let's just say as a parent listening and they're concerned about something to do with their their child, but they don't know where to go for services. How can you be of support to them? So I can be a support to them because they can definitely call me and they can give me kind of like a summary of what exactly is going on and how long it's been going on for. And I can collect the resources that are needed in order to help their kid, whether it's you know, referring them to somebody who is outside of school for like outpatient counseling services, whether it has to do with like the whole entire family and you need some type of family counseling. Even if it's like my kid is super hyperactive and he wants to do karate, but I cannot find anything. Like even if something as simple as that, I'm here to help with that because more important, I want kids to be healthy and functional. Yeah. Yeah. I've read that girls have higher rates of anxiety than boys. Why is this? So women are twice as likely than men to be diagnosed with um, anxiety disorder. And a lot of those things are based on biology and chemistry. And then some of them are social. So women have more hormones than men, right? Of course. But the hormone is a thing in your body that triggers the fight or the flight, which is directly associated with anxiety. So the thing to keep you safe, the thing to keep you away from danger is triggered by hormones, right? And of course, since women have them more than men, then they are more likely to be more anxious. Also, men have their hormonal testosterone fights off anxiety, more than women. So, of course, men have more testosterone than women. So that's why it's a little bit less. So that's biology speaking and like chemistry. But socially, women are more likely to be abused, whether it's physically, mentally, or emotionally, which has a very direct effect on anxiety and stress or post-traumatic stress disorder, as opposed to men. So that's why the rates are a whole lot higher for women and girls as opposed to boys and men. 
It's just such a sad circumstance, Mm -hmm. what you just outlined then. So in that case, what role can parents play in assisting in the alleviation of stress and anxiety in both boys and girls? So like I said before, I think listening, like really actively listening to your kid is super important. I always say that when you're listening, it's important to hear and not to react, right? Because a lot of times we listen, but we're always listening in order just to say something back to somebody. We're not really listening to figure out their feelings or emotions or really, really how they're doing. So like really listen to your kid when they're talking to them and be present with them. Like this goes back to social media, but like, you know, you can be caught on the couch and, you know, you're on your phone and you're surfing the internet or you're on social media or tapping in and that can have a very direct effect on your kid that just wants to have your attention for the moment. So I think being present, super present, listening to your kid, like active listening, hearing their wants, their needs, their frustrations, their happiness, their success. Like I know it can be a lot, especially if you have a little one, they're just rambling about absolutely nothing. But, you know, doing the uh uh-huh and like, "Mm, yeah, what else? Like really listening intently, I think that can totally change the dynamics of whether they're calm or whether they're anxious. And let's just say you have a child who you mentioned before, like it's not anxiety, but it's just worry. Like they get really worried about a test. And I uh, the I read this great book a number of years ago called The Upside of Stress. I think Kelly McGonigal is the the author. And she talked about the reason we are stressed about things is because we care about them. Right. And so you might have a kid who, you know, say the test you're talking about on the Friday and they just care a lot. They mm-hmm. care a lot about their grades. They care about sort of doing well all of that type of thing. But sometimes it's just it's just too much. Like mm-hmm. it's just, they're, they're, in a way, they care too much. Mm-hmm. Like if you get a 97, that's great. If you get a 95, it's also great. You mm-hmm. know, and the effort to go from a 95 to a 97 might be that, that just you're losing sleep and are worried about it. Mm-hmm. So when you notice a child is worrying, it's often not very helpful to say, don't worry right? Like you've listened to them, you know, they're gone over and over. Like you, you have really validated, you have listening. And so I guess I'm talking like the kids of that, that next level. Mm-hmm. It's not anxiety, but the, you know, the, they want so well to do well. What else can we do? Is mm-hmm. it, what, what sort of other strategies besides listening could we put in place? I think it's walking them through like their okay. thought process, right? So it's kind of like if you have a kid and they're like, mom, I'm really super worried about this test tomorrow. Okay. What are you worried about? Mm. I might fail. Okay, what if you fail? Then I might fail the course. Okay, what if you fail the course? Then I'll have to take it over again. Okay, and then once you take it over again, then what? And then they might, I mean, literally like walking them through thought by thought so that once you get to the ending point, it's like, see, you really don't even have anything to really worry about because at some point they're going to be like, I don't know, I'm going to have to take the chorus over again. It's kind of like, oh, so then you already have the information that you already need to take the chorus over again, right? So it's like walking them all the way, like walking that long circle with them to really figure out their thoughts. Hearing your thoughts out loud is super important because we're like always in our head, especially with kids. So allowing them to hear their own thoughts while you're like tracing it back to them, I think it will really, really help. It's interesting you say that. There's a gentleman named Jim Lear who's written some of the, these amazing books, and he is uh, this leadership expert. And he, what he talks about 
he's written a book called The Powerful Engagement, but I just bought his his new one, which is Leading with Character. And essentially what it is, there's 90 prompts, journaling prompts that you spend 10 minutes a day on. Mm-hmm. And I've just started that process. And he says essentially the same thing is that you need to be able to see your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. Because Or hear your thoughts because mm-hmm. when they're just running through your head. Madness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you write them down. You're like, oh. That's what, and he also talks about like that's what great leaders do. Mm-hmm. Is they're very it sort of increases this sort of self awareness, uh, so they're aware of you know their limitations, their right. their own fears and anxieties. But it's it's interesting. It's not you really triggered when you said that. It's just not about fixing worry. It's right. also about becoming a more effective like leader or mm-hmm. husband, wife, friend. Is just that you are aware of your thoughts mm-hmm. and like you have a worry about something, then you you follow that path, right. and you're like oh. It's like everything's okay. But right. it just, it is amazing how trapped we get in our own heads. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? If it's a kid, I recommend Dr. Seuss, Other Places You Will Go. I love that book. If it's an adult, Adult, I would say The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. I'm not familiar with the book. Can you tell us um, a bit about so, it? So, Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. She's an American, African-American woman author. This is her very first book, and it's basically dealing with self-identity. So, this little black girl living in the South, and all she wants are blue eyes in order to feel like she's adequate enough and beautiful enough to be like a part of the world. Mm -hmm. So that's what it's about. Super, super good story. Have to read it. It's a quick read too. Okay. Yeah, I will. (laughs) And I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here. So, but it just reminds me of something. I had this friend at university. Mother was Caucasian Australian. Uh, father was from Japan, mm-hmm. and she so born and raised in Australia in mm-hmm. a very sort of rural town, and was one of the most sort of remarkable and interesting you know people I met mm-hmm. through college. And it was a ama- like she essentially had that same view of herself that she was sort of inadequate mm-hmm. because she didn't look like others mm-hmm. and I didn't understand anything like you know I'm like 21 years old like right. I don't really I don't really get this you know yeah. and she's been on her own journey now and now she's one of the the leading television journalists in Australia and is just like is just a remarkable person but I just remember at that age just and I hadn't <laughs> I don't think ever really heard the term identity or like how that mm-hmm. mattered and like how and this is a complete aside <laughs> but it's just the Helping kids with identity, right? It's mm-hmm. like, what are some things that parents should be aware of or teachers should be aware of when, we're, when we talk about identity mm-hmm. or helping kids find their identity? Yeah, and that is a journey, man. And it's kind of like, you don't really find your identity of your true self until you become an adult, right? So it's kind of like when you're a kid and you're adolescent, of course, I mean, you're falling victim to... You want to assimilate into what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is wearing. Like you'll see it around school. Everybody's wearing the same shoes. They're wearing the same shirt, you know. And if you don't look like this specific thing, then it's kind of like you don't fit into the box. And you feel a little bit like 
less adequate than everybody else or you feel like an outsider or you feel kind of like I don't belong here. So when we talk about self-identity and helping kids find their self-identity, I think it's very important to, I keep saying this over and over again, but it's like a very important thing to have is like really listening to kids when they're talking about their self, right? So it's like, you know, sometimes kids, they'll use their humor or sarcasm to kind of talk about themselves in a derogatory and negative manner. And as an adult, it's super important, especially me as an adult, it's important for me to like switch it around like quickly, like don't say that about yourself, you know, especially if it's something with like negative connotation, like you're perfect the way exactly the way you are perfectly made, like all that other type of stuff. So being able to assure them that you are who you are and there is nothing wrong with who you are and who you are is beautiful. And also just being able to redirect their negative thoughts that they have about themselves is super important when it's kind of validating somebody else's, especially kids' self-identity. Because it's hard. It's very hard. And I've been thinking about this a lot as well because that person I mentioned, Jim Lear, he talks a lot about sort of the a private voice. Like he runs, it's called the Human Performance Institute. It's down in Florida and they work with high-performing athletes and CEOs and everything. And and something that he does a lot of these people who are just remarkably successful, like world number ones and championship winners and Olympic gold medalists and CEOs of companies, like just really high-performing people. But one of the things he gets them to be very aware of is their what he refers to as their inner voice or their private voice mm-hmm. is like, what are you saying to yourself, yep. you know, and just, and how limiting that can be. Mm-hmm. And once you're able to break that, then those people, that's how he's got people to be so successful is mm-hmm. once they become really aware of their inner voice and the messages that they're telling themselves, that sort of unleashes right. this future for them that was not really possible because it was like, well, I can never do that. And they rarely verbalize it, but it's constantly yeah. happening internally. That pesky voice is dangerous and that pesky voice is anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. That your anxiety is lying to you. I say that all the time. Yeah. It's not telling you the truth. Don't listen to it. It's a liar. Yeah. It is a liar. liar. It's a liar. I have read before that one of the best things to do with anxiety is to talk back to it, mm-hmm. right? Because it does lie. Like yeah. it is, and essentially the message anxiety is giving is what it, blah, 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 blah. And you can't handle it. Like mm-hmm. it's just, and just like, no, I can't handle it. Like mm-hmm. I can't, I might be worried, but yeah. Right. This was, it's not turning into rapid fire. But um, <laughs> what are the, and what are some things you love doing in your free time? Um, when it wasn't a pandemic, I love to go to the art museum. I love to go to like ballets um, with the, like the Charlotte Ballet. Um, I'm very much of an art girl. I used to like to go to the movies. Can't oh, enjoy that, that thing yeah. anymore. Remember the movies? Yeah. So fun. <laughs> it's a fun time. Yeah. And, <laughs> Uh, if you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? If I could learn a new skill, it would be roller skating. Oh. I'm, yeah. I'm good at roller skating forwards, but I'm horrible at roller skating like backwards and like doing all the tricks and stuff. So I want to learn how to do that. And then you could do roller derby. Exactly. <laughs> a friend of mine did roller derby. It was intense. Um, <laughs> They're so aggressive. <laughs> you're so aggressive. In the last five years, what new belief, habit or behavior has most improved your life? Being present. Always. Like just being able to like be in the moment when I'm in like doing things with events and or just like being out, I'll like completely just turn my phone off and I literally walk around with like a Fuji film camera, like a disposable mm. camera. Like I have like six of them now and I just click and take a picture and then I wait like just being present in the moment, taking it all in because I don't think we do that a lot anymore. 
awesome. <laughs> and the Fuji camera thing. Tell me about that. So, so, so like I always carry a camera in my, well, it's in my car now, but I just carry a disposable camera on me at all times. I think it's, we live like in a digital age now. I'm like, what will happen if like Facebook and Instagram shut down? Where are all my pictures going to go? So it's like, I'd rather just take it on like, you know, disposable camera film and have like a little photo album. So it, does it automatically print? No, it doesn't print. You I have gotta to get send it. it off. Yeah, I gotta send it off. So that's, where do, where that's do you the send nostalgic it? thing yeah, about no, that's it. What I mean, but I, I honestly don't know where would you, I would send it. Um, there's this place called Big Bins in Charlotte, and mm-hmm. they're like a photography shop, and you they just, still exist. They wow. still exist, and you can still take them to like Walgreens, CVS, and get know. them printed. Yeah, it'll take like a, it'll take some days though. But that's the best thing about it. it's like, ooh, I don't remember what I put on this camera. Yeah, I What's grew up on in here? the '80s. That's all I knew. You know, <laughs> just like, oh, we, you didn't feed it right. It's not. There's no photos. So, oh right. well. You know, <laughs> oh well. Like, yeah, twenty dollars um, down yeah. the drain. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? I would say that if you're not patient, this is probably not the career for you. Mm. If you are not like very big on listening, you probably don't need to be a counselor. But I would say if this is something that you really want to do, I think it just like, just go for it. Everybody's journey is totally different. It's not going to look like everybody's else's i remember when i graduated from college and everybody around me was getting a job and i was like what is going on how come nobody will hire me right but now i'm here at davidson day being a school counselor so it all works out in the end and i'm thrilled that it did (laughs) and last one is what inspires you what inspires me life in general everything about it like happiness grief joyfulness sorrow excitement everything inspires me to be who i am Thank you so much. And well, Jessica, this has been amazing. Thanks for all your time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.